The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Good morning. Welcome to Morgan Hill Bible Church. And again, happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there, whether you are a birth mom, a spiritual mom, an adoptive mom, a foster mom, we are so thankful for you and for all the work you do. I know I am blessed. I have an incredible mother myself, and I'm married to a woman who's an amazing mom to my two girls, and so I'm so thankful for for her. Um, One of the amazing things, right, is since we are made in the image of God, and I love to think about this, the best things about motherhood are still just a reflection of the perfection that is God. Right. And so the best of moms, love and sacrificial care and compassion for others is really a reflection of the God that we serve since we are all made in his image. And I'm so thankful for for how that is seen so clearly through the testimony and faithfulness of moms in our world. If you have a Bible this morning, I invite you to open it up to the Gospel of John, the book of John, chapter 10. John, chapter 10. It's the fourth book in our New Testament. And we are um, about what are we, week five? Week five on our seven-part series looking at the I am statements in the book of John. And John makes these statements about Jesus, or Jesus actually claims that Mark writes them down, that they give pictures, right, of who Jesus is and what he's done for us and how our lives are different because of who Jesus says that he is. The passage we're looking at today, we were actually just in, I think it was two or three weeks ago in John chapter 10. But since you maybe forgot a little bit of what I said a couple weeks ago, or maybe you were absent, I'll fill us in on a little bit of the context of John chapter 10. The chapter right before, Jesus has healed a man who was born blind. And rather than rejoice at what he's done, the Pharisees come in and start debating, was this man actually blind? Does Jesus have the right to do it? And they kind of go, Jesus and the Pharisees are going back and forth, where at the end of chapter 9, Jesus is like, you know what? You Pharisees, you are actually blind, not physically blind, but you are spiritually blind. Because you don't recognize who I am. You don't see me, Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. You don't understand the significance of who I am. And you are actually blind. And then he goes in to talking about these I am statements. And in the beginning of John chapter 10, he brings up this idea of sheep and shepherds and a sheepfold. And this, the I am statement that we looked at a couple of weeks ago was Jesus talked about being the door or the gate into the sheepfold, that he is the way to salvation, that only he is the one who can allow access into this sheepfold. And that takes place, There's it's said a couple of times, but the last time he says, I am the door is actually in verse nine. Right afterwards, again, in verse 11 is where we have our next I am statement. You could say these are kind of back-to-back I am statements of Jesus, something we all found out the Warriors won't be going back-to-back this year. So as a Laker fan, I had to get one of them in. Sorry if it's too soon. I just had to do one. No more jokes, I promise. We got one Laker fan over there. I like it. I like it. All right. So verse 11, Jesus with another I am statement says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, what's, what's unique and significant here is not so much that Jesus calls himself a shepherd. We're going to look at several passages throughout Scripture where this would have been expected for anyone who's a religious leader to call themselves this. But Jesus doesn't just show up and say, I am the shepherd. What does he say? I am the good shepherd. And there's a reason that is there, because 
What Jesus is claiming for himself to be is in contrast to the religious leaders that he is in dialogue with. The religious leaders of that time were seen and called, kind of a title of them was they were shepherds of the people, not literally out with sheep, but they were shepherds of the people. And Jesus claiming to be the good shepherd was saying, this is my leadership, how I lead my people in contrast to you. And this contrast between good shepherds and what the shepherding that God gives versus those of the religious leaders is actually seen at other points in scripture. There's a well-known prophecy that Jesus is referencing back to that they would have rightfully understood in his claim to be the good shepherd from Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel chapter 34, we're gonna read several verses from it. It says this, starting in verse one. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, not the actual shepherds, but the religious leaders. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, uh, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness, you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. And this prophecy comes down harsh against the religious leaders, right? You have done the opposite of what should have been expected of you, religious leaders. You have been harsh. You have not fed. Instead, you have taken for yourselves. You have been selfish with how you have overseen the people. In contrast with this is the one that God will send. Verse 11, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own lands and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing lands. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. By calling himself the good shepherd, Jesus is proclaiming that this prophecy here in Ezekiel 34 of God proclaiming that he will be the shepherd to his people. Jesus is saying that shepherd is now arrived and it's me. That I am that good shepherd. And just how the religious leaders back then were called out for how they were treating, how they were leading the people. Jesus is saying my leadership, how I lead following me is starkly different than what they are portraying. And so this morning, as we look at what Jesus is meaning by him being the good shepherd, we're going to see three ways that Jesus is different from the other religious leaders that Jesus is in dialogue with here from the Pharisees. So again, verse 11, we're back in John chapter 10 now. John 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, 
who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. The first way that Jesus is different from the religious leaders that we see here is Jesus demonstrates radical commitment. Jesus demonstrates radical commitment to his sheep, to those who follow after him. There's a contrast here in, as Jesus introduces this, this topic between a hired hand and a shepherd. Right? Between someone who's just hired to go about and watch it versus the shepherd who these sheep are his, they are hers, they own the sheep. See, he's, he's getting to this point that the greater the level of relationship, the greater the level of commitment is to the people in it. He's saying, I am committed to you because I don't just look at you. I don't just care about you. You are mine. Whereas a hired hand, and he's referencing here most likely the attitude of the Pharisees. The hired hand, he's saying, okay, maybe they're paid a working wage, but they go out. And when danger comes, who are they looking after? Themselves, right? They scatter, not because they don't care about the sheep, but they care more about themselves. And this is a hired hand will be like, hey, nope, that's a little too much. I'm out. I have to guard me. But he's saying, no, the shepherd will see danger and will actually, if needed, so even lay down his life for the sheep. That this radical commitment that he will not abandon, he will protect them, he will stay with them, even if it costs him his life. The shepherd is deeply committed to his sheep. Jesus uses this idea of this deep commitment in one of the stories he tells in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus says this, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country, and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Unlike these bad shepherds who led the sheep go astray, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And I will not abandon my sheep. I will seek them down. Even if they wander far from me, I will go and seek them down. I will leave the 99 behind just to go find that one who is straying off and get them and bring them back. He is deeply committed to us. The idea here is that the, the hired hand would run away from the wolves for the wolf coming, but the shepherd would stay. That Jesus protects us from the wolves. Now, we need to think about this because if we're honest, some of us may read this passage, we may see, okay, the, the shepherd will protect his sheep from the wolves and we may think, well, what about me? Because sometimes if we're honest, it feels like our lives have been tossed to the wolves, right? Like, well, does this verse just apply to everyone else and I got skipped over somehow? What, what, what does it mean that, that, the, that this good shepherd will protect me from the wolf because I've had a lot of pain in life? There's a lot of circumstances that I wish I could change. I don't feel like I've been protected all the time. What does this mean? Now, by Jesus being the good shepherd protecting his sheep, it does not mean that he will save you from all harm, from all injury, from all evil done against you. There will be hurt, there will be pain, there will be suffering in this life. But what he is promising here as the good shepherd is that you will never face it alone. That the good shepherd will never see your hardship, will never see your trouble and say, that's too much for me, I have to back away. No matter the difficulty, no matter the circumstance in your life, Jesus has been there with you every single day. If you are a follower of God, you have never been 
alone. You may have felt alone, but you have never been alone because the good shepherd will not abandon his sheep. In Psalm 23, which is a well-known passage talking about Jesus and God as a shepherd, it says this in verse four, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. See, Jesus protecting us from the wolves doesn't mean that we will be exempt from all hardship, from difficulty, from suffering, but it does mean that we will never face any of it alone. That the shepherd will not abandon us. He will be with us all the way. See, he, he makes this radical statement to them that the shepherd would be willing to lay down his life for the sheep. But Jesus goes further. He says, yeah, but a shepherd would say, yeah, if it came that much, I would die for my sheep. But Jesus goes even a step further. Look at verse 17. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Jesus just doesn't say, hey, I love you so much that if it came to it, I would die for you. He actually did die for you. And what he's saying is this is not not like, oh, something happened and Jesus died, but he's done this of his own volition, of his own will. He alone has the authority to lay down his life and has to take it up. See, this is important that we understand in Christianity that it's not that Jesus was a good person, did lots of good things, healed people, and ended up in Jerusalem at the wrong time, got caught in the wrong mob, ended up on a cross and was up there being like, how did this happen? Like, what's going on? Jesus did not go to the cross on accident. He went there because he chose to, because he loves you and wanted to lay down his life for his sheep. Because by Jesus laying down his life for us, we can have life. He lays down his life of his own authority. Well, what drove him to do this? Well, it's his radical commitment and love to us. See, Jesus as the good shepherd who doesn't just say they're willing to, but actually going and laying down his life for us is an extraordinary example of voluntary self-sacrificial love. A voluntary self-sacrificial love. It was of his own to give, yet he chose to do it. Where do we see this kind of love so clearly in our world today? Well, I think it's very easy. The, the clearest way that I think we see this kind of love exemplified in our world today is moms, right? Moms are the easiest and clearest picture of self-sacrificial, radical, committed love to others. There was a story, I think it was last week, that I saw online. And there was a, a mom who went out and she had two, I think it was younger toddler age kids. And they were out in Arizona doing a little family photo shoot. When something happened, they stepped on something and suddenly the whole family, the three of them got attacked by a family of bees. And so what does the mom do? She throws the kids in the car, protects them, envelops them, gets them in the car. At, at the result of it, she is stung over 75 times herself and actually had to be hospitalized. Now in that moment, I guarantee you, the mom's not sitting there thinking, should I save myself and just let these little ones have at it? Like say, good luck, kiddos, and just, no, she, she doesn't even have to think, right? It's just second nature that I will lay down my life for these kids. I will put myself in harm's way to protect them. 
We lived down in Hollister, and a little over a month ago, there was a good, I think it was a 4.5 earthquake that was, the epicenter was just over two miles from our house. And so it shook our house. It wasn't long, but it shook it pretty good. I was up here in Morgan Hill. I didn't feel a thing. So I, I think she's telling the truth. No, it actually did come. But, but my wife was at home with our two kids, and it was during nap time. And she's upstairs in our bedroom, and suddenly, like, it hits, and it shakes hard and quick. And without even thinking about it, what does Kristen do? She runs down the hallway to our girls' rooms. And by the time she got to the rooms, it had stopped, which she was thankful for because that means the girls were still asleep and she didn't have to wake anyone up, right? And the girls probably just thought someone was swaddling them. Like, oh, this is nice, right? But no one had to teach Kristen, this is what you do. Why? Because it's just natural. It's what, it's what moms do. It's what she does. See, Jesus is so radically committed to you that he doesn't just say, I would do that if I came to it, if I needed to, but it is because of the severity of your sin and how it has separated for you from God. And he looked at what your sin had done, how all of our sin has separated us from God and said, there's only one solution. I have to lay down my life for them. And he loves you so much that he did. He's so radically committed to you and to me that he laid down his life that we can have life by believing in him and what he's done for us on the cross. He's the good shepherd who will not abandon his sheep. Verse 14 continues, Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. The second way that Jesus shows his difference from the religious leaders of the time is that Jesus is one who desires deep intimacy. Jesus desires deep intimacy with his sheep, with those who would follow after him. See, the the metaphor may not strike for us right away because when we think of sheep and a shepherd, it's probably not what we think of as an example or an illustration of a close relationship. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, if you were here, when we talked about the door, Right? We don't think of like someone out watching sheep and seeing them as like, oh, wow, that person cares so much. No, it's like, okay, that's a job. That's what they have to do. But the relationship in that time of a sheep and the shepherd was most akin to what we have today of a family and their closest pet that lives in their home. Right? They would have names for it. They would know its routines. They could sense when it was angry or frustrated or tired. They, they knew that pet. Isn't it amazing how these animals kind of become parts of our families? Right, like this little hairy dog and cat, like this fish, this iguana, whatever crazy other animal you have in your house, right? Like it kind of becomes a part of your family. And that's what Jesus is saying for his sheep. And that's the example here is a sheep and a shepherd. It's not this distant relationship, but it's one of close intimacy. This example of, of intimacy with a sheep and its shepherd is used in Isaiah chapter 40. It says this, behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. See, Jesus' desire as a shepherd was with stark contrast with with those religious leaders. What Jesus is helping us see here and that he wants to truly, it says, I want to know you. I know my own and my own, those sheep, they know me. Is this that Christianity is not inherently transactional, it is relational. Christianity is not transactional, it is relational. What, What that means is Christianity is not just like, okay, I pray a prayer, Jesus gives me eternal life. Great, thumbs up. That was a good deal. We're on with the rest of my life. 
Jesus just doesn't say, no, I want you just to believe in me and then do whatever you want. No, he's saying, I want to know you. And I want you to know me. I want to have a relationship with the sheep. And notice that this level, we can see how intense that Jesus desires for this intimacy with those who follow after him to be by the example that he uses of what it can and should be like, right? I want to know my own, my own know me, verse 15, just as the father knows me and I know the father. That's his example of relational closeness, of mutual knowledge. It's just as God the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Now, the doctrine of the Trinity believes, and what we teach and understand in the Bible, is that God is three persons, but one God. That he has eternally existed as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, yet in perfect unity amongst them. And so what Jesus does is he says, hey, I want my sheep to know me. I want to know them. This is how much I'm going to take the most intimate relationship in all of human existence and reality and say, that's how I want to know you. Just as the Father and the Son have known each other for eternity past, Jesus says, that's how I want to know you. And that's how you can know me. So how do, how do we know Jesus? How do we know him and, and he knows us? Well, for us to know the shepherd, we must know the shepherd's voice. For us to know who the shepherd is and to follow the shepherd, we must know the shepherd's voice. This is seen earlier on in this, this chapter when he's talking about the sheep and the shepherd. He says this in verse three. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him. Why? For they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him. For they do not know the voice of strangers. See, the shepherd would call their sheep and the sheep knew the voice. And so they would follow after that sheep. They wouldn't just follow any voice, but they knew the voice of the shepherd and they would follow and listen and respond in obedience. Are we hearing, listening, and responding to the voice of Jesus in our lives? See, so much of your life, so much of the direction and the response to the circumstances that happen in your life and in my life and all of our lives, so much of it is determined by what voice are we listening to? What voice are we listening to to allow us? Are we listening to the voice of the shepherd or are we listening to the other voices that are in our world? I was reminded of this story this week, most likely because it's Mother's Day and also because our, our oldest, her birthday is just a couple weeks away. But I was reminded of when, when our oldest, Aria, was born. It was th- almost three years ago now, a very normal time in human history. Pandemics, protests, you know, all the normal things that was May of 2020. I can't wait to tell her someday what life was like when she was born, right? She's like, are you crazy? Yeah, it was crazy. The world was crazy. So, so there, there we were, right? This, you know, the, the anticipation is building up. This is our first. We're so excited. We go into the hospital, and if you've ever given birth or been there, you know it happens real quick. It's a joke. It doesn't. All right, so, so you go in, right? Labor comes, and there's, you know, the pushing, the pushing, and then finally, right, like, okay, it's time to deliver the baby. And that doctor who just comes in, like, every hour to check on you, they get to do the fun job. They get called in at the end, right? All those nurses who do the hard work, they just stand by the side. Well, the doctor comes in to deliver the baby, right? So the doctor comes in. Our oldest, our firstborn is about to be born. We're so excited. And so, you know, all right, what I need is one big push. And so Kristen pushes, and Aria is born, but all that comes out is her head, and nothing else happens. Nothing else comes out. And I'm like, this is my first time, but I think there's more that's supposed to happen than this, right? I, I'm new here. I'm new here. But I, th- I think more is supposed to happen. 
And what actually happened is she came out sideways, and so her shoulders got stuck coming out. And so quick what happened is there's a whole bunch of, you know, like 10, 15 medical personnel suddenly flood the room. Fortunately, Aria was delivered safely. She was perfectly healthy and fine. Mom recovered well, was perfectly healthy and fine. There were no complications or anything. But in the moment, looking back, and I talked to the doctor afterwards, it's kind of a high stress situation because when the baby is stuck like that, they're losing oxygen. And if something is not done quickly, the baby's life could be lost. And so when I I told people, you know, you kind of, people ask, oh, how did it go? And you're like, well, this is how it went. It wasn't exactly smooth, right? And people asked me, like, well, well, were you scared? Because I was right there, right? I had one hand on Kristen looking right at the dog. Like, I was right. Were you scared when it happened? I tell them, well, my honest answer is no, I wasn't. And it's not because I have, like, some super faith or because I'm a pastor or something like that. It has nothing to do with it. The reason I wasn't scared was because when, when Arya's head got stuck, the doctor who was sitting there delivering the baby, she looked right up, right at me. We locked eyes, and she said this. In about five seconds, there's going to be about 10 people in this room. Everything is under control. I have it. She said it in such a casual way. It was like, hey, what are you doing this weekend? <laughs> there was zero hints of panic of concern, anything in her voice. And I looked at her and I'm like, well, I I don't know what's going on, but she's not panicked. And so I will listen to her voice. And so I was totally fine as these tons of people came flying into the room and what very easily could have been this very scary situation. Why wasn't I scared? Because I was listening to her voice, not all of the things happening around us. See, in our world, there are so many things happening around us. There are so many voices that would fly into our lives. Are we discerning the voice of the shepherd? Are we listening to Jesus' voice? That amidst all that happens in our world, all that you hear, all the images that come at you, that voice that says, you are loved. You are not alone. You are cared for. Are we listening to that voice? Or are we listening to the other voices around us? See, as we listen to the voice of Jesus calling out to us, calling us by name, we will know him and be known by him. The last verse we're going to look at today is in verse 16. Jesus says this, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. The third way that Jesus proclaims his difference from the religious leaders is this, is that Jesus declares profound inclusivity. What Jesus is saying here is profoundly inclusive in what he is preaching and teaching to the Pharisees and to those who are there. The illustration that he's pulling from now goes back to what he was talking about earlier that we didn't read this morning. And there's a sheep fold, right? There's a pen of sheep. And they would have understood this when Jesus used this example. The Pharisees would have thought, oh, we know who's in, who's in the sheepfold. That's the Jewish people, right? That's God's people. The Jews are those who are in the sheepfold. And so Jesus says, guess what? I have other sheep not just those who are of this fold. And what must I do? I must bring them also because they will listen to my voice. They will hear me and respond in faith and obedience. And so there will be how many flocks? One. One flock, one shepherd. 
See, this is a profoundly inclusive vision that Jesus has of what Christianity can and should be in our world. See, Christianity transcends all cultural and ethnic groups. Everything that would divide us is transcended by Jesus's work on the cross and the reality of what life lived under his lordship looks like. Christianity is not owned or ruled by one race or ethnicity or cultural background. It is inclusive of all, wherever they come from. See, there, there's sometimes this, this thing that goes around in our world that thinks that, that Christianity is a white man's religion or Christianity is centered in the U.S. And it's just shallow, short-sighted, false thinking. That's not the reality of what Christianity is. In fact, I, I don't get to travel a lot and probably most of us don't get to travel outside the U.S. a lot. But did you know this? That if you were to rank continents in order of who has the most evangelical Christians, what is the continent with the most evangelical Christians in the world right now? It's Asia. What's number two? It's Africa. What's number three? It's South America. Don't worry, we do still beat Europe, right? We got independence from them and we still are, no, I'm just kidding, right? But then North America, then Europe, right? The average Christian in the, in the world is not white. They do not look like most of us or a lot of us this morning look like, right? That Christianity extends beyond any racial or cultural boundary that could be placed on it. So there's there's perception that Christianity is an exclusive religion, exclusive. Well, does Christianity, as Christians, do we hold to beliefs that we say these have to be true in order for you to be a Christian? Yes, we do. And so does every religion in the world, Right? No religion in the world is, you know what our religion is? Just do whatever you want, think whatever you want, live however you want. That's our No, that doesn't exist. That's not an actual thing. And so, yes, that's true of us, that there are things that we find that you have to believe to be true in order to be a Christian. But thinking of exclusivity and inclusivity, religion is exclusive. If they say, well, no one, this, these people aren't allowed to be a part, or you can't do, or if you've done this, or if you're from this, you can't be a part of us. Is there anything you can do that would exclude you from the family of God? The answer is no. Doesn't matter where you come from. Doesn't matter what you look like. Doesn't matter if you grew up in a religious home or you never went to church. Doesn't matter what race you are. Doesn't matter how rich you are. Doesn't matter how poor you are. There is nothing about you that could exclude you or disqualify you from being a part of Jesus's flock. Anyone who comes to him and believes in him is one. One flock under one shepherd. See, this, this gap between Jew and Gentile was the defining gap in their world. It's how everything was segregated. And Jesus says, nope, it's not two. It's one now in me under my authority. See, our world tries to divide us. And as a church, we do a pretty good job of this ourselves. At dividing over things that may be important, but are not the necessary truth of Scripture. And I hate to break it to you, though I'm not the one breaking it. It's the world we live in. Another election is coming up quick. And do you know what the world is going to try and do? You know what the Satan will try and do in churches? Divide Christians over issues that are, yes, important, but are not foundational to the gospel. Because this is a church for Democrat, Republican, everything in between and on either side of it. Because under Jesus, there is one flock with one shepherd. There's not one kind of church for people who vote one way or another. That does not exist. That's not what Jesus came to do. As Christians, we need to stand on the authority that Jesus has united us and he transcends any gap, anything that we would say in our world, this divides people. Jesus has blown that away through the cross and says, no, under me, there is one flock 
one shepherd. Anyone can come to Jesus and find belonging, find purpose, find hope, find comfort, find meaning in him. Jesus is the good shepherd that cares, loves, and provides for his people. One of the things that I'm always interested in as a pastor is is what people are looking for or reading in the Bible. And now that so many people use apps and the internet to, to read the Bible, we have a pretty good idea. And every year, basically, the most searched passage throughout the Bible, almost every single year, is Psalm 23. Psalm 23, which starts like this in verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd. Think of this psalm as what life can be like, of what life should be like, with Jesus as your good shepherd, the one who will guard you, who will protect you. Jesus is the one who will never abandon his sheep. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jesus, we thank you that you are the good shepherd. That you came and laid down your life to seek and to save your sheep who were lost. God, we thank you for what you've done for us. God, may we truly know you. May we discern and listen to the voice of Jesus calling out to us amidst all the voices in this world. God, and when we stand united because we are not divided, but we are one flock with one shepherd because Jesus is our savior. And we thank you for what you've done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.